Adrian Miller is a fellow recovering lawyer whose new book, Black Smoke, is due out this month, April 2021. He establishes the role of African Americans in barbecue historically and in the present. This is an important spotlight on people who are often unrecognized. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Adrian Miller. Adrian has a new book coming out called Black Smoke, and it's going to be available sometime toward the end of April. So we'll be talking to him about that, but he also has two other books I want to mention, The President's Kitchen Cabinet and his James Beard award-winning book from 2014, Soul Food. So welcome, Adrian. Good to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about how you decided to do this book about barbecue because barbecue is pretty hot right now. Is that what made you decide to do it? Or were you just really interested in the African-American connection to barbecue? Well, I got into this because I was researching my first book, Soul Food. And, you know, I was thinking about it and I just thought, well, so many black run barbecue joints have soul food options on the menu. And so many soul food restaurants have a barbecue option on the menu. So I thought to understand soul food better, I needed to understand more about barbecue. Because seriously, before that, I mean, we only ate barbecue Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day. So I didn't really eat that much barbecue. I don't have a lot of memories going to a barbecue restaurant. And my deepest thinking about barbecue was, oh, this is good. So And you're not not from a place that's a real barbecue place. Yeah. Right. I'm from Denver, Colorado. So, you know, I immediately lose street cred on the subject. (laughs) Uh, I have to build it back by telling people my parents are from the South. So it was really as I started looking more closely at barbecue culture, thanks to the Southern Foodways Alliance, I went to this field trip to Austin, Texas in 2002 and spent three days just eating barbecue. It was three of the happiest days of my life. And then later that fall, I went to the symposium, which was on barbecue. So that was really the first time that the cuisine had been put into social context. And I'm a nerd anyway, so I was just digging all of that. And so as I started to delve more deeply into barbecue culture, I just saw the glowing and glaring exceptions of of African-American representation. And so that troubled me because that did not square with my experience. And that ultimately, I was like, okay, this is not right. I need to write about this. Well, so what about books like Lola's Eli's Smokestack Lightning and things like that? Right. So once I decided I wanted to write about this, I started to look at what was already out there. And Mm -hmm. Lola's book is just one of the best ever books out there on barbecue. I also read Real Barbecue by Vince Staten. And I forgot the other guy's name. I'm just blanking on it right now. But then, you know, other than Lola's book, I just noticed that there really weren't a lot of books authored by African-Americans on barbecue. Mm-hmm. The only book that I came, the only other books that I came across were Bobby Seal wrote a barbecue with Bobby and Bobby Seal is the former Black Panther mm-hmm. uh, who wrote a book in the late 80s that was put out by 10 Speed Press. 
And then there was a post- posthumous cookbook for C.B. Stubbefield, uh, who's a you know barbecue legend in Texas, mainly Lubbock and Austin. And so those were really the only two books. But then I just started to see, you know, all these other people had not only one book, but several. And I was thinking, what is up with that? So the most traumatic uh, episode was when I started watching more and more Food Network, uh, the Food Network's barbecue specials. And uh, in 2004, there was a barbecue special with Paula Deen. It was called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue, hour-long special where she goes to the South. You know, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm definitely going to write about barbecue at some point, so let me watch this show. And I was just eager to see who would get, uh, get a spotlight. And uh, no, when the credits rolled an hour later, no African-Americans were on-air talent. Um, there were certain there were scenes of African Americans doing the work, but none of them were, I guess, worthy enough to to be interviewed. And so, you know, at first I thought, well, well, how does this happen? And second thing I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue, that Southern barbecue. <laughs> so uh, that spurred me to even look deeper. And I just saw it's not just Paula Deen and the, and, you know, it was other shows on the Food Network and mm-hmm. other emerging barbecue shows as barbecue was getting really popular. And so how did you begin your research? I mean, I understand that you you started with the Southern Food Waste Alliance, but then when you decided, I'm going to do this, what what did you do? So my go-tos are really the oral histories or interviews of formerly enslaved people that were done by the Federal Writers Project mm-hmm. in the 1930s. That's always the gold mine. So I just look for barbecue references in those works. And that's about 3,500 interviews of, of various lengths. Uh, and then old newspapers. I mean, that has been, for all of my books, that has been the main source of information because newspapers are more about chronicling daily life. Yes. And so you get a lot more information than you would find in, say, books. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, one smart thing I did, I don't do a lot of smart things in my life. I haven't done a lot of smart things in my life. But one thing I did do was when I was working on the um, Soul Food book, as I was eating my way through the country, I made a point of checking out barbecue joints in the area. So I already had a ready-made database of kind of regional uh, barbecue styles and how it, the differences between say, how it may perform in a black restaurant versus a white restaurant. So I already had that work. So I didn't have to do that all over again. I just had to supplement it. So tell me what the differences are. Uh, So when I'm asked what's the difference between white barbecue and black barbecue, I often say that black barbecue tastes better, but if people want a deeper... (laughs) understanding. Uh, you know, an African-American barbecue, you, you, there's this kind of conventional wisdom that barbecue is low and slow, right? Low temperature cooking for a long period of time. But a lot of African-Americans cook hot and fast and then slow. So uh, primacy on spare ribs. I know that that's lessened over time, but, you know, for a long time, if you barbecue joints, black barbecue joints featured spare ribs where other places didn't. Also kind of a charcoal taste, um, but uh, I would say that the, the the holy trinity in black barbecue has pretty much been spare ribs, pork spare ribs, chicken, and hot link sausages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there's a little play, you know, depending on where you go, but a lot of that. And then sauce. There's this conventional wisdom emerging that barbecue should be unsauced because you want to taste the meat. And, and black people are like, says who? Because uh, I've been in places where you're served your barbecue and it's just a it's a sea of sauce with islands of meat poking up. Mm-hmm. And, I, and more than one person when I interviewed them told me, well, look, anybody can cook barbecue. It's making the sauce. That's your that's your signature. That's your calling card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I so thought it was surprised. I just see... be the way around. Um, but 
did you see a lot of difference between, you know, sauce versus rub and that sort of thing? You know, I didn't, I was thinking about this. I just didn't, um, I didn't see a lot of emphasis on rubs. Mm -hmm. It was just pretty much almost all the black joints had a sauce and a couple of sauces. Cause usually a black run joint um, that was a, for a long time as distinguishing characteristic was having a really spicy barbecue sauce. Mm -hmm. Again, that distinction has faded over time because just our palates are warming. And so more and more people want spice, but if you wanted an insanely spicy barbecue sauce, you usually had to go to a black joint and you see over time, references to people saying, hey, this sauce is too hot, but give me some more of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you talk to anybody that really is kind of studying barbecue at all? Any kind of scholars or anything like that? Yeah, so a lot of people helped me out. So Jim Ockmoody, who's written a great book called Smoke Lore that came out maybe in uh, like a year ago or so. That's a great kind of summary. Bob Moss has written a great book on barbecue. John T. Edge. I talked to Lolis, Eric Eli, who we mentioned earlier, Daniel Vaughn. Um, J.C. Reed, who is in Houston, mm -hmm. was a font of information. Um, so yeah, so I, I talked to a lot of people, but a lot of my information was really just pouring through these historical sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then and to the extent that it, when I go to a place, to an extent that a local barbecuer would talk to me, I, I would. And I was careful not to ask for secrets, but I would, you know, I, I could get a lot of information by asking certain questions. Well, so did you find that a lot of people were in the family business, so to speak, so that their parents had been in barbecue business or grandparents or something like that? Not in African-American circles. And I, I wondered about that because, you know, some of the most compelling stories in barbecue are these intergenerational businesses. And more often than not, and, and certainly there were cases of that, right? But more often than not, the barbecuers were telling me, you know, I want to pass this on to my kids, but it's too big for them. <laughs> they can't handle it. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side of the equation, the kids just didn't want to do that, run that business because, you know, it's hard work. And in, in a lot of cases, parents started this business so their kids could do something else. They wanted their kids to have a better life so they could be a professional, you know, be a doctor, lawyer, right. uh, architect, you know, whatever. Uh, so all of those things are in play. But I, I have wondered about that because it seems in other sectors of the restaurant industry, there's more a tendency to have that intergenerational connection. Yeah. Um, and I can only think of a handful of, of African-American restaurants that have that. Well, I can also imagine that the, the amount of time that goes into making barbecue would really make you think twice about whether that was something that you really wanted to do. So I could definitely understand saying, I think I'll move on to something else and maybe have more opportunity <laughs> than your parents did, you know, so I, I get that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, Although, you know, the question is, and I don't know, because I'm not in a restaurant um, doing this, but I just wonder now, most places have transitioned to these commercial gas smokers, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're adding wood flavors and stuff, but they're not cooking the old school way. So I, I do wonder if it is that much, you know, if it's that much more difficult now to be in the barbecue business. And I guess it's just a matter of how much you want to scale up. Right. And some of them have timers and computers in them that you can program how the temperature changes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if you just have to program it, stick the stuff in there and then forget it, it's really not so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
I want to talk to you um, a little bit about the fact that you and I are both um, recovering lawyers and how you decided to transition to food. I mean, I know what was in my head, but I'm kind of curious about you. Well, my experience was pretty joyless. So I just remember I was singing spirituals in my office frequently. And uh, do you know how dispiriting it is to be in your office singing Deo while the sun is rising? I mean, you know, that's just soul crushing. So uh, I was going to open up a soul food restaurant and um, just, you know, fate would have it. A law school friend of mine reached out to me and that led to me working in the Clinton White House. So I made this transition to politics and it was really only after being in the Clinton White House when I was, I was trying to get back to Denver, Colorado from DC because my ambition at that time was to be the Senator from Colorado at some point. So I wanted to get back to Denver and start my political career. And the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even gonna tell you what shows. And then uh, in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I uh, was in the cookbook section because I always like to cook. And I found John Edgerton's Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. So, you know, the book was about 14 years old when I picked it up. So I just thought, well, somebody's done it. So I, uh, I just reached out to him. I emailed him and uh, he said, look, um, some people have done parts of the story, but nobody's done the whole thing. And there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So with no qualification at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's really what started the journey. So it was really accidental. I mean, I never, I, I did not plan on being an author of food, especially about food. So did you think, well, I'm going to do this while I'm also building my political career so that you were doing both at the same time? Or did you just kind of abandon your political um, aspirations? No, at first I was trying to do both. So I considered my, I was acting like a grad student um, who like who had a day job. So it was after work and then on the weekends, I, and I have a world-class library in Denver, the Denver Public Library. So through interlibrary loan and access to their databases, I just started studying up. And then I joined the Southern Foodways Alliance and I made a point of going to the symposium. That, this was back in the time when you could actually go to a symposium. <laughs> it wasn't a lottery because it wasn't so immensely popular. Right. Um, and uh, you may make connections and just started talking to people. So yeah, it was that. And then it was only later that I soured on politics. And it was really 10 years later after being in politics for 10 years in, in Colorado, even in a place like Colorado, I was just like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. The governor, I was working for Colorado's governor and he just decided not to run for reelection. Uh, just like a surprise. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that moment, I just knowing me, I know I would just research it to death for another 10, 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what, I'm going to write that book. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. And um, no, but it just spoke to me. So I just I just went all in. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, financially, it was probably the most disastrous decision I've ever made. But in terms of my own happiness, the no, the no brainer. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sometimes happiness trumps money. I, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I tried to tell my creditors that, but they don't seem to agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so do you still have people referencing Soul Food, the, the book? 
I do. So it's been interesting, um, especially uh, in this moment after the murders of uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, there's been a, a rush to affirm African-Americans and African-American culture. And so people have, uh, I mean, I sold a grip of books over the summer. And even as we're speaking right now, um, the University of Alabama, their College of uh, Information Sciences, they, they are doing a one read program. So, you know, almost 100 people are reading my book right now, Soul Food. Oh, that's exciting. The concept of a huge group of people reading your book is very affirming, you know. Yeah. And I, I know that there are some colleges like uh, in uh, Oklahoma and Arizona, people are reading my book every semester. So there are, it's being used in some classes. That's lovely. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And the students seem to still like it because I I think the thing that I noticed is people don't expect me to, my books to be accessible and kind of funny. I think they're just expecting some kind of really heavy, you know, erudite study. And I try to, I try to get that balance, but, you know, make it, make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, your books are very readable. That's, that's a, a really nice bonus of getting information and a fun read at the same time. Yeah, thank you. And so how did you transition to the president's kitchen cabinet? So while I was writing the soul food book, um, I came across a few stories of African-Americans who had cooked for our presidents. You know, not enough to write a book, but definitely I could have done a long magazine article probably. And so I just said, okay, once I put the soul food book to bed, I'm just gonna just poke around in those newspapers and those databases and see what comes up. And, you know, pretty soon I was just getting a lot of information. And I found 150 African-Americans who had cooked for our presidents since George Washington. Now, you know, I wish I had gotten this idea while I was in the White House because I could have gotten so much scoop. But, you know, these things come to you when they come to you. So, yeah. No, I I really, I I love that, that book. I I mean, I thought Sold Food was a great book, but the the one that spoke to me was the president's kitchen cabinet. And just the idea of thinking back on um, like having kings and things like that and how people cared about what the monarch ate and everything and to be feeding the president and uh, what that means and how you're influencing them through cooking for them. I just love that, that whole thing, because it's not, it's not the, the point of view you normally take when you're talking about the president. And so I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. And there was a lot of just rich material. And again, it just reminded me that these stories were told at one point because they, they existed in a newspaper. We just forgot them or we just forgot to pass them on. So it was, it was fun to tell that collective biography. And I was surprised that there haven't been more books about the cooks, not necessarily African-Americans. I'm not surprised about that, but just uh, in terms of uh, just food, the food story of the White House, there were certainly cookbooks, mm-hmm. but you know, telling this behind the scenes story, I was a little surprised there weren't more books out already. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it just was a reflection of the fact that actually writing about food and eating was just not something people did. And right. so that just fell into that general category. And, and so often no one wrote about it because it was brown people and women who were doing it. And so it didn't have any importance. So that's why nobody wrote about yep. it. So, yep. yep. Yeah. And 
just think of all that we have lost because of that. I mean, that, and whatever we try to recover now, um, and fortunately there is some material in newspapers, but it still wasn't even covered that much in newspapers compared to other kinds of subjects. I mean, if you had to cover sports in newspapers, you'd have a whole lot more. And, exactly. uh, and that's not to say it shouldn't be covered, but um, you know, it would be, there would be so much more. And so you just wonder what, what we're, we're having to conjecture about what we're having to think about, because you can only, you can only talk to the people who are still alive now. And then maybe there weren't people asking those questions before, you know, and, and so it just, it makes me sad. Yeah. And I, I tell people all the time, I say, look, I found 150 people, but I'm just scratching the surface because records were not kept, um, you know, for the very reasons you described earlier, history did not record often the full names, maybe even mm -hmm. one name of these people because they just weren't considered important. Well, they um, weren't even considered people. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so one of the cool things was after the book came out, I did get a few people reach out to me and say, oh, thank you for writing about my ancestor. Um, and then other people said, hey, you know, you didn't mention my person, but this person cooked for blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, so cool. So uh, that, 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 I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really nice. I like that. I like that too. Okay. What is on the horizon now? So the next uh, book, Black Smoke, um, which is, comes out in late April, is uh, a look at African-American barbecue culture. So it's really a part celebration and part restoration. Mm -hmm. So the celebration part is just to show, hey, these are just the wonderful ways that barbecue plays out in Black culture. Um, and the restoration part is just, just, just to remind people that African-Americans have made uh, significant contributions to this cuisine. And if you were just to look at media today, you wouldn't even know that. I would wonder if people know that black people barbecue, which is how distorted things have gotten. And this book is not a typical diversity critique in the sense that, um, hey, historically, you know, white media has never paid attention to African-Americans. Um, when it comes to barbecue, all, all I'm really arguing is can we get back to what was happening before the 1990s? <laughs> because before then, it was no problem to have African-Americans in a barbecue story. In fact, it would be considered weird if you didn't. Mm -hmm. And that all changes in the 90s. And here we are today. Now, we're starting to see some good signs, right, of more inclusive uh, inclusiveness, but um, it's, it's, it, we still got ways to go. And so since this book is essentially written now, we're just waiting for it to be available in stores. And I'm sure you'll be doing some book touring and whatever, but what, what else are you working on now? What has got your, your interest right now? Yeah, so there's kind of three things tugging at me and I'll figure out when what order, but one is I've been thinking about creating a, for lack of a better term, a dining guide for difficult conversations. And so the idea is like how to have a four part dining series um, to deal with whatever the problem is, race, homophobia, gender equity issues, urban rural divide, whatever it is, and how food can play a role. And so it's a how to guide if you want to host that dinner series, how to do that. Uh, and it's not going to be a thick book. It's going to be something very manageable, maybe 25 pages tops. Um, and there probably will be a mobile phone application for that. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. Uh -huh. Do you have um, partners and everything you're working with already? 
yeah, I have people on my team because I just kind of floated this idea in an article uh, that appeared in the Huffington Post. And from that article, I had a ton of people say, hey, I want to help you with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see something, you know, that you float out there resonates. So then I'm like, oh, I guess I got to put some meat on the bones. Right. So I have a, com- I have a conversation expert who's helping me. I have a person who's uh, expert at developing curricula. Uh, I have like a design thinker um, who's helping. I have a chef who's helping me think about the, the food angle. And um, I just have some young people who just have some energy around it. So I'm like, cool. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing is I would love to write a book about the um, African-Americans in early Colorado. We've had some really interesting people here in Colorado, a place you normally don't associate with Black people. Uh, but one example, 100 plus men, African-American men in 1865 held up statehood in Colorado until they were guaranteed the right to vote. Um, oh. Yeah, and people don't know that story. So Colorado should have become a state earlier. But uh, because of their influence, and they had a sympathetic ear. Unfortunately, they had Republican governors. If there was a Democratic governor, it wouldn't happen, right? Yeah. Um, and they had Republican allies in Congress, so it was held up. So there's a lot of stories like that. Um, and then the the other one that I'm thinking about is I'd love to do a similar similar to my other books, just do a a history of African American street vendors and uh, uh-huh, yeah, and just talk about their contributions and how they changed the food scenes. Well, when you when you do that one, let's talk about New Orleans because we had so many street vendors here. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. would be an interesting conversation. And here's the cool thing: I because again with newspapers, I have the lyrics for a lot of these street cries and the sheet music. Like newspapers would actually print the sheet music <laughs> in their articles. So you know, I I can't read music, but somebody who can, I mean, we can whatever whenever that book comes out and whatever music is like at that time. I would love to have some kind of companion musical piece so that people can just imagine what it was like to be in New Orleans, 1800, and, and wake up in the morning and hear that. Well, you know, the Smithsonian did recordings of the of the street cries, and there's still people in New Orleans that I can hook you up with that do it. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I do have that recording. So that that was part inspiration. I love that recording from the Smithsonian. Yeah, there's still people who do it. So yeah, that'd be awesome. that would be really wonderful to do. All right, one more thing. I know that you go to garage sales and thrift stores and you buy the most fun things. And I can see actually in the background right now something that's up there. So tell me about this. Yes. You know, do you have a like a certain style you're going for? Is it is it use and what it could be used for? Or is it more like, oh, this looks cool that that brings you, uh, you know, that, that that calls to you when you see those things? Yeah, so I think fu- the, f- the main function is just being a broke brother. And uh-huh. so not being able to, you know, afford the top grade stuff. So trying to figure out what will work. So that's utility. Um, and then, you know, I, I do want a fun vibe. If, if someone were to ask me, what's my, um, kind of interior decorating style or vibe. I would say it's post-dormitory eclectic. Um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. I don't really have a style. But yeah, so part of it is just like use. That's the main thing. Um, mm-hmm. I was always just looking for stuff. And then there's other stuff that I'm like, that's kind of fun. And so aesthetically, I know, how could I fit that into my place and just, you know, send a fun vibe. And so, you know, this watermelon ceramic dish, you talked to me two years ago, I was like, no, no way I would own something like that. But I remember when I was in the thrift store and looking at it, the per, one of the women who worked there, she's like, oh, 
I'm so jealous. You know, there's, there's certain things that you, you know, you, you hope you're that are around at the end of the shift because then they get to get them. And she, uh-huh. and she, the way she resonated, I was like, oh, maybe I should get this. <laughs> uh, I, I used to have a, a collection of fruit and vegetable pitchers. Um, and I also have a collection of cows that are creamers. So uh-huh. I, uh, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the other thing that, that drew me to thrift stores is all of these used cookbooks. I mean, I found so many gems at these thrift stores. I mean, books I'd never heard of. And I mean, just amazing books. Yeah. Um, so that, that, was, that was also a bonus. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good reason to go to thrift stores. I, I, I never look at the clothes or anything like that. I look at the books and I look at all the ceramic things and the glassware and all of that. And I have, right, found, gonna... I have found appliances, like I found, I think for a dollar, a Pizzella iron, a, an electric one that was still in the box that had never been used. And I never wanted to spend 45 or $50 for it because I thought, how often am I going to use this? But I wanted one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I found one for a dollar, you know. So, yes, you have to uh, you have to just be persistent and be willing to wait because it'll happen. Yeah, exactly. So that does it. Next time in New Orleans, we're going to have to thrift. Okay. I'm okay. just going to I'm just going to like let you guide me. <laughs> I would be happy to do that. Now, one thing, you know, this is like the yeah, this is extreme thrifting, but you know, I've heard stories about this American garage. See, I'm, I'm messing up the name of it, but it's something like you can just drive this highway or there's a route and there's like people are have garage sales along the route. There's a name for it. You know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, I'm familiar with it, but now oh, I have yeah. to find out about it. <laughs> yeah, it's like the American garage sale or something. And, and seriously, there are people that they drive, I mean, hundreds of miles and you just know along this route, people are supposed to have garage sales and oh, wow. uh, it's a thing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to look into that because I'm definitely, definitely interested. And I'm trying to get my grandchildren even to go with me because I want them to, to really get into it, you know? <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. I mean, you know, our taste isn't the same, but uh, nevertheless, you know, if it's only a dime or 25 cents or whatever, you can indulge their, you know, their whatever, their their desire to have something. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting to me is how much younger people are connecting to the stuff I post. So it, we may think that our tastes are not the same, but maybe this old school stuff is becoming in vogue. Like I forget, I used to get so much crap about my members only jacket. Okay? <laughs> and it's got the tag and everything. And, and you know, like all the people my age are like, dude, you need to retire that jacket. Uh-huh. So I was wearing it one time and this young guy, like early 20s, he's like, man, that's so cool. I love that jacket. <laughs> Okay, that's that's it. Yes, you know when the older you are, the less you think that something that you were interested in is is cool. But when I see people going back twenty or thirty years and thinking that's old, then you know it's like, oh, you don't know old. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Well, thanks so much, Adrian. I've really enjoyed this conversation a whole lot. And everybody should be on the lookout for Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. 
It will be out toward the end of April, 2021. Look for it. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.